This episode is brought to you by Privacy. So for those that don't know by now, Privacy lets you buy things online using virtual cards instead of having to use your real ones, protecting your identity and bank info while you're online. Right now, new customers will automatically get five bucks to spend on their first purchase if you go to privacy.com slash barcode to sign up. So I can't tell you how long I was searching for a quick and easy yet secure service to protect my financial information if I was making an online purchase. And my main concern was the same one that you have, securing that payment info and where that payment info goes after you hit confirm purchase. Well, with privacy, you're in control. It puts you in the driver's seat. You know, you set the speed limit. You can put that cruise control on 55 or 105. It's your call. So before you make that next online purchase, hit up privacy.com slash barcode and get yourself an account with five bucks to spend on your first purchase. Privacy.com slash barcode. Your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Hey, Boozebot. No Tony today, I see. Correct, Chris. He is off again. He takes unlimited PTO literally. I'm telling you, he is an unregulated entity. I swear he writes his own rulebook. You know him too well. What can I make for you today? I need something refreshing, yet strong. I got you. This one is iconic. The Corpse Reviver Number 2. This drink was originally concocted as a hangover remedy, of which Harry Craddock who cataloged them in the Savoy Cocktail Book in 1930, noted, to be taken before 11 a.m., or whenever steam and energy are needed. Well, shit, since I don't see an NTP server anywhere, and I already attack life with vigor, pour it up. You got it. It's one ounce gin. One ounce triple sec. One ounce Lilith Blanc. One ounce fresh lemon juice. And one dash absinthe. Shake all ingredients with ice. Strain into a chilled glass and garnish with an orange peel. That is straight up deadly. Thanks, Boozebot. I need to run. I'm going to go catch up with my boy and get the lowdown on CMMC. Okay. Although, I must advise you to heed Craddock's final warning. Four of these taken in swift succession will unrevive the corpse again. Sip with caution. See you next round. I'm here with Jacob Horn, a leading expert on the integration of cybersecurity governance programs and quality management systems. 
Jacob currently specializes in DFARS and CMMC compliance for manufacturers in the defense industrial base. Also, he has the baddest beard in the business right now. Jacob, <laughs> my man, welcome to Barcode. What's up, Chris? Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure, man. So, um, yeah, first off, let's just set the tone for, for those of us who may not be familiar with CMMC or, or work with it um, as intricately as you do. Uh, could you just give us a quick rundown of what CMMC is and why it's important? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a uh, it's an increasingly common question as the hype around uh, CMMC, deserved or not, is becoming more and more common. So um, you know, we were talking earlier in the green room over here about uh, trying to understand CMMC. It's almost a difficult question to answer because it's not it, it's not an island unto itself. It's not as new and independent as people are led to believe when they first see it. But uh, so the, the basic, basic explanation is CMMC stands for the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, which is a program that is being run by the DOD in an attempt to assess the level of maturity of DOD contractors, subcontractors, and suppliers that handle specific categories of information. Now, the program that establishes the different categories of information is a government-wide program that has a 10-year-long history full of all kinds of craziness. Uh, the actual intricate parts of the CMMC model itself are really derived from existing standards from NIST. People might be familiar with like their uh, their cybersecurity framework or the risk management framework and things like that. CMMC can really be thought of as like a reskin of existing NIST controls that have been picked up by the DOD in their own program to attempt to assess their suppliers and contractors under the larger umbrella of a bigger government program that has slowly been developing over the last decade or so. Gotcha. I think um, that's the clearest explanation I've ever received. And well, we're just getting started, so we'll see if you feel the same way by the time we get to the end. Well, no, again, it, it's just, it sets the tone. It gives us an understanding of um, of what CMMC is and, and those that don't work with it have at least heard the acronym before. It's, it's very common yeah. to hear and read about these days. You know, we hear about these organizations trying to align with CMMC and those that you know, are required to uh, become compliant. And many of these organizations are confused themselves on how to assess their posture uh, and whether or not they comply with these requirements. You know, talk to me a little bit about the current state of CMMC and how organizations can help achieve compliance. Sure. Yeah. So um, really, there's a, a series of we'll we'll split things into two halves a couple times. And hopefully that way of chopping up the conversation will help people in, you know, deal with maybe something a little more bite sized. So the, the first way of approaching CMMC that I like to uh, use for people is that CMMC is really two parts. There is the CMMC program and then there is the CMMC model. And a lot of the news, a lot of the hype, a lot of the politics, a lot of the uh, headlines, those are all generated mostly from the CMMC program. Who's running it, how much funding there is, how many assessors they have, when is it starting, what is it called, 
all of those things are programmatic elements of CMMC broadly. The CMMC model, however, like we talked about earlier, is really a reskin of existing NIST controls and far fewer stories and, uh, and uh, you know, hype are derived from the controls themselves. So a lot of the current uh, events, a lot of the breaking news, a lot of the, uh, you know, what's going on with CMMC in webinars and articles and stuff like that doesn't really have anything to do with the details of what you're actually going to be managing and thinking about or getting assessed against. It has to do with timelines and funding and personalities and stuff like that. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. With that being said, uh, on the program side, it's crazy, man. Like it's, uh, it's, you know, (laughs) it's, uh, it's wild. Nobody would have ever imagined that government regulations of cybersecurity would be such a soap opera, right? There are, uh, there are competing agendas. There are people with opinions of who should be driving the ship. There are people who think that the whole thing should be ripped and replaced with other groups and, and, and programs. It's, it's crazy. I mean, you also have an administration change in the middle of all this. You have new funding uh, calls for lots of different cybersecurity issues in Congress and at the agencies. That's getting all mixed up in it. So you could very easily pay attention to the news and convince yourself that CMMC is going away. You could convince yourself that CMMC is going to be on your door tomorrow. The truth is really somewhere in the middle, right? As with most things. The reason why I'm confident in saying that the truth is somewhere in the middle is, remember, this is not a new program. This is not a new effort. It sounds new. It's marketed as new. That's what got everybody's attention. But this has been coming for a long time. And a lot of those details on the other half, on the model half, are requirements and uh, controls and technical things that you'll need to manage uh, that they have a new name, they have a new number, they have a new description, but it's the same fundamental sort of core concept. That part hasn't changed. And that being said, that part probably won't change. You could switch administrations. You could switch bus drivers, you could switch, you know, cover pages on the marketing material, the fundamental core of the model is not really going to change. So when people are trying to orient with what's going on, that's kind of the guiding light that they need to pay attention to is that, you know, a lot can happen in two to five to seven years about what these things are called, but we already have a 10 year long history of this thing changing names. And the controls haven't really changed all that much. That kind of gets back into the history of how they determined what the controls were going to be, which, you know, if you want to get into. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you, you know, I'm sort of speaking out of sequence here, but you did mention that this is not this is nothing new. Right. So could you could you rewind for a bit and just talk to us maybe about the, the origin of CMMC and how it got to be where it is today? Sure. Yeah. There's a longer, yeah, there's a longer talk and explanation for this. We could probably link it in the show notes if people are interested, but effectively what happened was um, about, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the government uh, decided uh, they sort of woke up to the fact that information security is a big problem, right? We're having breaches. We're losing intellectual property. We we got a serious problem on our hands and we need to come up with a solution for how to fix it. And, uh, 
effectively, the government is a very big organization. There's a lot of people trying hard with a lot of good ideas for how to come up with a solution, and they're not always coordinating those efforts. And so over time, those efforts eventually collided with one another, and they had to hug it out and compromise with who's going to, whose ideas are going to win, win the day. And effectively, DOD wanted a very small set of controls for their contractors to have to implement. And uh, NIST and NARA, which is another government agency that was in charge of the bigger program, wanted a very big set of controls for all of the contractors to have to uh, have to deal with. The compromise that they came up with is a document called NIST Special Publication 800-171. If you've heard people talk about CMMC, you've probably heard them mention this document. There's 110 requirements in this document, 110 security controls. And it is essentially, if you think about the way that NIST is, is structured, 853 is the, the ultimate catalog. It's the, the mothership of security controls, if you will. There's like, you know, thousands of controls and subcontrols and enhancements and all kinds of stuff. That is supposed to be like, uh, think of it as like a database of controls. And you're supposed to pick and choose and tailor, in the words of NIST, a smaller subset of controls. And that's what the government did. They said, hey, we don't have time to tailor for every single company that we're going to do business with, for every single agency. That's just not going to work. We're going to try to normalize everything. And the, the goal was to come up with the ultimate baseline the absolute lowest common denominator that would be acceptable to the government for you to implement as a steward of their data, right? This is kind of a key point. A lot of people will look at CMMC, they'll look at 171, and they'll say, oh, that's the ceiling. Like, if I put everything in place, that's 100% on the test, but I pass if I get a 70%, right? So what do I really need to do? That's not what the government did. 100% on the test would be all of 853, which is not what anybody in the world is going to do. Right. They said, hey, this is the minimum. So think of it more like you got to do this many push-ups and do this many sit-ups and run this fast to join the military. Yeah. Right? Probably not getting a waiver. This is the PT test. Like this is the, the minimum baseline for getting in. So effectively, they came up with this baseline. They developed it over years and years. And uh, they didn't enforce it. They didn't, they didn't send auditors or assessors or you know, anybody to certify that you were doing anything. You just had to check the box that you were doing it. And this is a whole separate conversation because these companies that got this requirement in their purchase orders or in their contracts, it's literally one line that says, this DFARS clause says use good cybersecurity. And the average person is like, yep, I do that. Because there's a million of these DFARS clauses. They say it's, it's up to their interpretation, right? Yeah. They say, you know, don't do business with North Korea and don't use child labor and use good security to the normal person. They're like, I do all these things. I'm, an, exactly. I'm a good person. I'm running a normal business here. The problem is, is when you unpack that one line, it balloons into the world of cybersecurity and, and data governance. And there is no real way to know that that was happening. Totally, totally understandable. Problem was, from the government's perspective, they're getting all these checkboxes back. It was good enough for them. Everything's good. Yeah, you're self-attesting that everything's good. So you can see the, the problem that emerges. Over time, the security situation, the threat landscape, the IP theft from you know, the United States by countries like China gets worse and worse and worse and worse. 
until finally it gets so bad that Congress steps in and says, we can't take self-attestations anymore. We got to hold people accountable. We got to get in there and verify what's going on. We got to know what's up. DOD, we're directing you. They did this in the 2020 uh, NDAA. So the big authorization act every year, they said, you got to come up with a mechanism. You got to come up with a framework for assessing these companies. So what they did was they essentially took 171, which had existed for 10 years by, by that point, and they reskinned it and they, they chopped it up a little bit. There's different levels that correspond with different types of data. And they said, we're going to create assessors that will verify what you've been saying that you've been doing. And part of the cause of all the drama around CMMC is that the obvious issue was a lot of people weren't doing that stuff. You know, they didn't know, nobody checked. You know, it was a perfect storm of variables to get us into a bad spot. And there was no enforcement then, right? No, yeah, it was just pure self-attestation. So the way I like to describe it is the government set up their contracting base to do poorly when the assessments inevitably would come by. They were not checking their work. They weren't ever asking for details. They were just taking their word for it. And anybody that's worked with manufacturers or small businesses in the industrial base, they are singularly focused on doing good work for the DOD. And if the DOD doesn't ask them for something specifically, they are not going to do it, right? You're talking about companies that are hyper, hyper specialized in stuff like precision machining of parts or the precision coding of precision machined parts. They only do one process. It is not in their worldview that cybersecurity is, is a thing. This is common to all small businesses, not just DOD contractors. And the DOD really did not put in, they didn't manage this problem well. And the, the ultimately, you know, the pickle that we're in is that because of that self-attestation problem, the DOD's hands are partially tied in their ability to reimburse costs, to even estimate cost of how much a change would be because they've got this pile of receipts over here that says people have been doing stuff. So this is something I actually wish the DOD was better about in that it, it isn't that it isn't that there aren't lines of funding or funding appropriations that could exist to help small businesses with these requirements. It's that if you're asking the people with whom you already had a contract executed and you said, I did A, B, and C, and now you're saying, pay me for A, B, and C again, they literally cannot pay you for that. <laughs> so gotcha. because we're on such a short time scale, all of these edge cases and issues and what about this and what about that, they're all coming together all at once. And uh, that just adds a lot of confusion to the conversation. I gotcha. And what, what's the time frame here from when, when this started till, let's say, up to present day? Are we talking 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? Like, how long has this been in the making? If you follow the uh, if you follow the timeline all the way back from when the government first got motivated for what we now think of as verifying this. So just stepping back real quick. Right. Cybersecurity maturity model certification has that name cybersecurity in the name of the model. But the best way to think about it is it's really more of a privacy model masquerading as a cybersecurity model. Right. So when the government was trying to derive 800-171, they took the CIA triad, the confidentiality, integrity, availability triad, like the, the most fundamental idea in security, 
And they said, listen, we're only worried about a specific kind of data and we're only worried about its confidentiality. Everything else, we're going to go ahead and assume that you have a full-fledged security program in place. And this is the, this is the, the hurdle that we need you to meet the performance levels that you need to hit in order to continue to do business with us. So when you hand that to a company that doesn't have a security program, they get, they, they don't have a paddle. They don't know what to do because they don't have the inputs. They don't have what's going. They've never been asked to have a security program before. It was a bad assumption. Yeah. So if you think about when the government was originally motivated to start doing that, it goes all the way back. This is going to sound crazy. It goes all the way back to nine 11. So when 9-11 happened in the, in the 9-11 commission report, uh, it came out that the government was very bad at sharing data. Most people remember that they're bad at sharing classified data, but the report also said they're bad about sharing unclassified data, primarily terrorism related unclassified information, like what a police department might have or a local government, right? So as part of the reform, what they wanted to do is they wanted to create an information sharing environment for classified and unclassified information. And this went through years and years of presidential memorandums and executive orders to try to get the agencies to share this information. Well, uh, no good deed goes unpunished. So all of the agencies said, Roger that we're going to come up with a way to share this information. What happened was you ended up with like 150 different markings for the data and 150 different names for what is essentially the same data. So then nobody knew how to share it because all the markings were different. So fast forward to 2010 and the Obama administration goes to the agencies and they say, listen, we've been working on this for like nine years and nothing is better. What, what do you want me to do? Obama's basically saying what, Hey agencies, what do you want me to do to help you out? They, get together, they write up a report with like 40 recommendations and the CUI controlled unclassified information executive order is essentially the report from the agencies bottom lined by Obama saying, okay, go do that. And one of the main recommendations from the agencies was expand the scope of CUI to not just unclassified terrorism information, but all forms of sensitive but unclassified information and normalize the markings. So the CUI program, the Controlled Unclassified Information Program, was you know, traced all the way through this thing from 9-11 up to the agencies asking for the data to be normalized. And then the government had spent years at that point deduplicating the markings, synthesizing the markings, and coming up with what we now know as the CUI registry which is where you can go and see what all these, these different categories that I mentioned earlier, all these different categories of information are contained in that database. And this took six years because there were 2,200 different regulations that the government had internally to protect the information. They had to read all of them and figure out who outranks who and which ones are repeated and this and that. I mean, it would take, it would take years. The problem was, was that in that gap, in that six-year gap, the DOD is getting hammered to get their contractors to stop leaking this information. So the government has not finished, they haven't finished closing the gap on their own organizational debt and the DOD is getting told, go fix it. Gotcha. So they come up with their idea to fix it. Then they do this compromise to get to 171. And then that was the solution. There was no verification. 
So that was another problem. And now we have CMMC. And that's why I was saying earlier, if you want to know what CMMC is, there's a whole lot going on behind the scenes that got us here. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for the explanation there, you know, in terms of how CMMC has unfolded up until this point, And then, you know, the evolution of awareness to those affected and those not affected by the requirement. Yeah. So I'll put it this way, just to put, yeah, just to put a bow, like on that long explanation, right? The, the reason why it's important to know all those threads through the history of the development you're, you're looking at CMMC on your desk now. What do you care about what happened in 2010? The reason why it's important is that when the headlines and the news and the hot takes come from the program side of CMMC, if you get convinced that these requirements are going to go away, then you're missing the bigger picture. This is an effort that the government has been working on now for a really long time, and there is no indication that they're going to suddenly stop the effort the people might change, the name might change, but the requirements are not going to change. So that's the thing to keep in mind. That doesn't really help in terms of like, what do I do here on this detail and this detail? But I see a lot of people sort of getting convinced or allowing themselves to be convinced, hey, maybe this is going to go away. Don't be so sure about that. Gotcha. Looking forward then, and, and you know, and how CMMC is evolving right now. Yeah. Um, where do you see it going? And also what are some of the challenges that organizations should be ready for? Yeah. So I think, um, I, I think that if nothing changes, right, if, if nothing with the way that things are currently written and structured changes, uh, the first thing we're going to see is probably a bit of a delay. I mean, it's a government program. It's a government rollout. There's a lot of vested interests. There's a lot of stakeholders, right? And that's perfectly normal. We anticipate that. <clears throat> um, outside of that, if nothing fundamental changes, I foresee um, a, a lot of pain is the way I'll put it, right? So it, it, is, it is a bad habit that the DOD has and that the government has where this is just the nature of regulation. It is very reactive, right? And typically we don't get regulated. I mean, look at solar winds, look at Kaseya, look at, you know, all of the stuff that has happened in the wake of those issues or literally any other regulation ever. They don't proactively regulate things. They reactively regulate things after something bad has happened. And when that happens, they're going fast. They're not trying to listen. They're not, you know, there's, there's not as much time as doing it proactively but there's no incentive to do it proactively, right? So if nothing changes, um, several things are going to immediately break in the CMMC ecosystem. Uh, several things are going to be exposed in terms of where the flaws are. And that could involve everything from uh, lawsuits against the people running CMMC against the government. It could involve lawsuits against the assessors themselves. It could involve businesses going out of business. It could involve people spending money on the wrong thing and inadvertently going out of business. Uh, it could result in worse security in some situations. It could resolve in missing the mark on where the real leverage points in the system are. There's a lot of stuff that could happen because anytime you're going to take a really diverse and complex environment like the defense industrial base, 
and you attempt to apply a single standard to it, you're trying to put a round peg in a square hole. Like there's, there's edge cases. Mm -hmm. And when those edge cases end up being people's livelihoods or, you know, who knows what, Mm -hmm. then um, you're going to get some very uh, strident reactions, I'll say. But that being said, uh, I don't think that necessarily has to be inevitable. Right. So I've been doing this now working with small companies, small manufacturers in the industrial base, or in this working with the supply chain of big defense companies for several, several years. Um, And I think there are some common patterns that have emerged that we could use to inform adjustments to the model, not to the program, to the model that would preemptively avoid a lot of these issues. So I don't care what the model's called. I don't care who's funding it. I don't care who's running it, right? The requirements, like you got to do configuration management. You got to do access control. You got to do backup. You got to do all that stuff. Doesn't matter. So similar to like the CIS controls, right? 100%. So at a fundamental level, right, there's a, there's a, 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 a company called Compliance Forge. They have an open source project called the Secure Controls Framework. And effectively, it's a it's a gigantic, it's the world's biggest spreadsheet, right? So be prepared. But it is a proof of concept that you can fundamentally map all compliance and privacy frameworks at a control level to one another. Okay. Now they don't all cover the same information. Some of them are more or less comprehensive, but at a fundamental level, all of these compliance frameworks are talking about the same thing. There's only so many ways that you can describe configuration management. There's only so many ways you can describe, you know, account privilege management, right? Or vulnerability management or this or that or various life cycles and data. There's only so many ways. So these are all talking about the same thing, which is why if you think the requirements are going to go away, you know, it's not true. That being said, what we know about the industrial base, right, is that at the sub tiers, not the big Northrop Grumman's and Raytheon's and stuff like that, but the smaller companies, the machine shops, the manufacturers, you know, subcontractors and below, they are mostly small businesses. Mm-hmm. Like 75% of them are small businesses. And there's tens, hundreds of thousands of these companies. And you know what small businesses don't have? They don't have IT people. They certainly don't have cybersecurity people. They don't have budget. They don't have understanding. They don't have knowledge. Wendy Nather famously a few years ago came up with a metaphor for this. She called it the cybersecurity poverty line. And it is the best way of understanding the problem that we're facing. Like when we walk in and we say, here's a model, here's a compliance standard, here's a regulation, right? And you ignore what it actually looks like on the ground. You're effectively telling these companies to pull themselves up by their cybersecurity bootstraps. And it's just, it's just not going to happen. I mean, perfect example, you'll have people in Congress, uh, well-intentioned people trying to help and, and figure out what's going on with the, with the problem. And they'll say, listen, we don't have enough. We have this big skills gap. We got a, we got a cybersecurity workforce gap. We got millions of open jobs, right? I think uh, my buddy's a recruiter and he was just telling me that the average cybersecurity candidate on the job market today is on the market for less than seven days. I mean, it's, it's wild. So if you're a mom and pop machine shop that's been making parts for 30 years and now all of a sudden you're you're trying to wrestle with this problem, like it's we're never going to close that gap on a timeline that will help what's going on. The point is, right, the point of bringing that up, that they 
don't have the resources, they don't have the money, is that whether it is because you can't find people or you won't find people or you're just doing good business, small businesses outsource their technical requirements. They use managed services, right? Like everybody knows this. This is just sort of the way that the world is being run currently. And it scales, it's cheaper. You don't have to find the workforce. There's a lot of good reasons to do it. There's a lot of reasons that small companies have to do it. So in my mind, we don't have to really change the model in any major way because of the fact that these companies are looking from below the cybersecurity poverty line at CMMC or 171 or CIS, doesn't really matter. The first thing they say is too expensive, too burdensome, too disruptive, too impactful, right? Uh, There's no way that I'd be able to do it. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong. That is absolutely true. So the solution that is usually brought up is we need to make the model smaller, right? We got to take stuff out, right? Well, that's a big problem for two main reasons, right? Like if you remember what we talked about, the government already said, this is the floor. This is not the ceiling. So as a policy matter, unless you're going to go amend some legislation, it doesn't sound like Congress is in the mood to do less security, then that is a non-starter. The other issue is that if you start taking requirements and controls out of the model, you're not adapting to the threat landscape, right? Like everybody's saying zero trust is the future. Everybody's saying that, you know, your cloud migrations for the companies that haven't done it, that's the future. You can never get to that higher level next gen architecture approach if you can't meet the baseline, right? If you can't do configuration management and access control, you can't do zero trust. And, you know, the government and regulators and the 1% of the security world, we've all convinced ourselves that zero trust is the future. Well, if we don't bring these people along, then they're not going to make it, right? And that's that nobody wants that. So what do we do? <clears throat> if we can't take stuff out of the model and we don't have the resources to just give to people for one reason or another, my proposal is that we split the model sideways, right? So ISO 27001 is actually a good example of this. So ISO 27001, all the technical requirements for information security, those are in an annex. The core of the model is the management of your information security system. And what's cool about ISO, even though the controls are sometimes lacking, right, they could be improved, is that the management core of all these models are universal. So you could pick up a quality management system or a safety management system or, you know, any, basically any ISO model and those management non-technical requirements have been normalized. You add on these appendices to change that management system into whatever flavor you need. Well, guess what? That appendix to ISO 27001, you're not doing that, right? Your MSP is doing that. So with CMMC, we have the same situation because we know that the controls fundamentally are all basically the same. So what we should do is we should split the model into a technical half and a non-technical half. The non-technical half you're still going to assess those companies on those non-technical requirements, right? But we know that the IT guy doesn't work for the company. They work for the MSP. So how do you judge the maturity of a company that outsources services? You judge them on their management of the service. You don't judge them on the execution of the service. You're judging their MSP on the execution of the service. 
So the big bottleneck in CMMC right now is we don't have enough assessors, right? Big surprise. We got a, we got a workforce shortage for everything involving security. And now we have a workforce shortage in the assessors for security. I mean, you could have seen that coming from a mile away. So how are we going to use the assessors more efficiently? Well, the biggest risk is the MSP part of the div, right? We know that's true. That's where the bad guys go, right? That's where they serve up their ransomware. It's, it's, uh, it's the choke point for all the information flow. And uh, we need to reduce the cost on small businesses. We got to use assessors more efficiently. We need to address the risk better, right? We got to do all these things. And the simplest way of doing that without deleting parts of the model, which is a bad idea, is to just split it. Just split it. Start with the MSPs. You give the small businesses more time. The assessments go faster, which means they are therefore cheaper. They're not as foreign and scary. And, uh, you know, for a lot of these companies, they have very good internal process control, right? They run their businesses well. That's why they are successful. So if you are assessing a small company on their maturity and their management of these interfaces, mm-hmm. you'd probably get to a point where instead of most of the companies in the DIB failing this assessment, it'll probably just be a formality. Yeah. The, the, real, the real leverage point is where are we going to stick that technical burden? Right now, I think we're putting it in the wrong place. And, and you're saying that that would be the optimal approach because of the, the heavy presence of MSPs. 100%. Yeah. So two big reasons, right? <clears throat> when we talk about the cost of complying with a model like CMMC, the cost of complying generally comes from the technical controls, mm-hmm. right? Not the non-technical controls. Documentation, management, uh, non-technical process, that takes time. It doesn't necessarily take a lot of money, right? The cost is all on the technical side. But since they are not doing the technical work themselves, the MSP is doing it. Why would you ask them to do it? Not only do they not know what you're really asking them, but they're not going to be doing it anyways. Now, the reason that the MSP, MSP business model works is they can scale right, those investments and it is therefore cheaper over time for their clients. Uh, there, you know, one of the, the reasons why you'd want to focus on that is because of these cost efficiencies and the assessment efficiencies. But as of right now, managed services providers are an unregulated industry. This is kind of this is kind of adjacent to the conversation what we're talking about. But let's put it this way: the defense industrial base is a critical infrastructure sector, and there are sixteen critical infrastructure sectors. You've been hearing this in the news, right? Legislation, CISA, and DHS, and Congress: critical infrastructure sector. So, electrical, water food processors and manufacturers, defense industrial base, stuff like this, right? So the, the crazy part is that the same problems that we're seeing in the industrial base for the DOD exist in those other critical infrastructure sectors. They are small businesses. They have no budget. They have no IT people. They have no cybersecurity people. They don't know what you're talking about. The, the DIB is not unique in this instance. So what does that mean? That means those other critical infrastructure sectors are using MSPs. Well, guess what? My theory is that you remember the shadow IT problem that used to be, you know, the, the big headline years ago, you know, the, the unknown elements in your network are where the biggest risk is. Yep. Well, if we kind of zoom out a little bit 
and you think of the critical infrastructure base as a big old network, yep. right? The MSPs are the shadow IT of those elements. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to regulate not just the DIB, we're trying to regulate pipeline providers and electrical providers and water purification plants, but we're not regulating the MSPs. So I tell people all the time that CMMC is exposing issues in one critical infrastructure sector, and it is the canary in the coal mine for what's coming for everybody else. Yeah. So it's, it's easy to kind of write it. Yeah. It's easy to kind of write it off and be like, oh, that's DOD, that's CMMC. No way, man. Yeah. Cause then you're seeing your supply chain attacks, right? Absolutely. I mean, if we're going to regulate, listen, we're not going to avoid regulation, right? I mean, the way things are going, self attestation doesn't work. The government's never going to accept, you know, not verifying what's going on, especially in critical infrastructure sectors. Uh, and so as a result, I think over the next five to 10 years, there won't be a single aspect of the economy, basically, that isn't regulated from the angle of cybersecurity. The question is not, are we going to regulate things or not? The question is, when we regulate them, are we going to unnecessarily crush these sectors when we don't have to? The trick is, is that not crushing them doesn't involve fewer requirements. It involves separating the requirements. Because think about it. If we do the annex thing on CMMC, if something comes up where we need to add technical controls to the technical annex of CMMC, the MSPs can absorb that hit. No problem. Right. That's what they do. They theoretically, they like doing that. Right. It's informed by risk and they can scale and distribute that cost accordingly. If you let, if you sit that technical requirement on top of the small business yeah. and you try to add stuff to it, I mean, we're talking about taking stuff out right now. That's too much. You'll net, you'll never, you'll never be able to scale to meet the problem. Yeah. Very interesting perspective. And I think that, um, it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. It would be, you know, my message to DHS and to CISA to, you know, the cyber policy folks in DC, right. Put it this way. We got these critical infrastructure sectors. You have a unregulated infrastructure provider to your critical infrastructure sector. Those infrastructure providers are not designated as critical in and of themselves. If we're going to regulate these sectors, we got to regulate them the way the bad guys attack them. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know we're coming up on like the final stretch here. Um, I want to ask you about the final rule because that's something that I've read about. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's something that you like to post about a lot. So clear that up for us. What, what is the final rule? And, you know, it's something that we're still waiting on, correct? And it's something that's coming up very soon. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so like, like, I'm not a lawyer, right? I'm just a, I'm just a guy like everybody else. So in my, uh, my journey here through trying to better understand CMMC and its history, you inevitably get drawn back to something called the Federal Register. And the Federal Register is essentially a gigantic document that is uh, the, the description and the documentation of all of the government's activities, especially in terms of what they call rulemaking. And rulemaking is sort of the uh, other side of the coin of lawmaking. So in the United States, we have uh, the U.S. Code, which is all the laws, you know, stemming from legislation. And then we have the Code of Federal Regulations that effectively have the force and weight of law, 
Essentially, this is not a law school primer, right? Mm -hmm. So the rulemaking process is usually conducted by federal agencies, and this could be done as a result of a direction of an executive order. It could be done by the direction of Congress. So, for instance, we talked about in the NDAA, Congress directed the DOD to come up with a framework for verifying security in the industrial base. So they issued a rule, right? You can see this in the recent software security executive order from President Biden. Uh, In that executive order, it says, hey, we got to do all this cool stuff. I'm directing these agencies to do rulemaking. And in that rule, you will have it say the following things, or you will do the following things to achieve these goals. You can see this in legislation. They'll direct agencies to write rules. Anyways, the rulemaking process is a it's a big old process. It's 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 the heart of government bureaucracy, essentially. And anytime they're going to issue a new regulation, they have to go through uh, a public comment period, which usually means they issue a proposed rule. They get public comments back. It goes through an interagency review process. And this could be any regulation, not just security, right? Big old cycle takes months to years sometimes. And it's, it's how the government does its, its business. Mm-hmm. With CMMC, what we got in November of 2020 was the interim rule. So there could be a proposed rule or an interim rule, effectively very similar things. And uh, we got an interim rule that said CMMC's coming. There's some new clauses in the DFARS. There's a bunch of stuff that's happening. Here's our reasoning. Here's why we need to go fast. Here's our estimates, blah, blah, blah. So then there was a public comment period. We got a bunch of public comments back. And now the government is going through the long process of when, when I say comment, I don't mean YouTube comment, right? Uh, I don't mean like little comment. A comment might be several pages long from people like the American Bar Association, from, you know, concerned citizens. I mean, a comment could be significant. So when they say they got 850 comments on the rule, you're talking about a lot of information to read, to process, to synthesize. And part of the wonder of the way the government works is that they have to address them all. So they, not, they don't just read them and then say, oh, thanks for the comments. They read them and then in their new issuance, the final rule, if they adjust anything or not, they have to provide an explanation for why things were adjusted or not in light of the comments. Oh, man. So really, you know, if you were to think about on a small scale how you would want the government to get your feedback and improve on the rule, that's probably how you'd want them to do it. When we zoom out to the level of the Federal Register, this could take a while, especially when people are starting to participate, right? These are comments to rules, like a comment to a single rule could be. And pages, pages, 100 percent. I mean, you could have I mean, it could be a single line says, I don't like it. Too expensive. Yeah. Uh, you know, the CMMC is dumb, right? You, you could do that. It's your free citizen. You can participate in the rulemaking process. I was going to ask you, who can, who can contribute? Like, who can write the comment? Anybody. Okay. Anybody, yeah. Oh, you, you, don't, you don't subscribe to the Federal Register and get it delivered uh, like a phone book on your doorstep every quarter? <laughs> Most people don't, right? Most people don't know that this process, this is a, this is, like I said, this is the, the, the deep, dark heart of, of bureaucracy and the government. No one in their right mind has a normal interest 
in, in what's going on. And, and honestly, man, like I've said this before, if it weren't for coronavirus lockdown, I probably wouldn't have stumbled across it myself. Wow. Um, you know, I'm not a lawyer or anything, but when you start, I just started asking why, why is it that it's so obvious that people can't afford CMMC, but the government doesn't seem to care. Well, it's not that the government doesn't care. There are answers, policy-based answers, why it, why they have the statements that they're making, why they have the positions that they take, so on and so forth. And the only real way to get that reasoning behind why things are the way they are is not to read the model. It's not in the model. Mm. It's in the federal register, in the rulemaking process. And so when you go back and back and back and you read all of the rules, the interim rules and the adjusted rules and the final rules, they answer every comment every time. The pattern that shows up is they've been answering those comments the same way for 10 years and where they say cost, burden, impact, blah, blah, blah. And they say, nope, no change, no change, no change, no change. So when you go forward and you say, okay, it's going to take them about a year or so normally to go from an interim rule to the final rule in black and white, this is the final rule usually takes about a year. That means that this fall, November, December, maybe January, you know, into the holiday time frame, somewhere in that time frame, we would probably expect the final rule to come out. And it is my opinion that if you read the way the comments have been addressed and you listen to the way that the government has communicated to everybody, I don't think that we are going to see answers that are fundamentally different from the ones that we got over the last 10 years. And people are going to be real surprised, I think, when they say it costs money and the government says, okay. And they say, it's going to put people out of business. And they say, okay. And they say, because they've said it before. They've said it twice before now. We've gone through this process twice. The only thing that's different is now the assessors are coming. Mm, gotcha. Right. So I, I, I put a chart up, uh, maybe we can link to it, where the Federal Register uh, on their website shows you the page views, uh, you know, old school page count, uh, page view counter at the bottom of the page, right? Well, they'll show you the page views for each of the rules for this line of rulemaking over the years. And on average, nobody reads them. Why, why would you, right? Not only are you not being assessed, you don't even know the Federal Register exists. It doesn't, it doesn't affect you. So you're talking, you're talking page views in like the 1,000 a thousand page views. Well, the current interim rule on the federal register, 90,000 page views since it came out in November. Wow. Like 11 times more page views than the average page view of any cybersecurity rule that's been issued over the last decade. So now all of a sudden people are paying attention. Yeah. And that's why it's, it's such a, it's such a precarious position for everyone because these are issues that have existed for a long time in the government's mind. We're out of time. We're losing the war, right? We're, we're losing weapon systems as fast as we make them because China just steals the data for it. Right? So we're, we're, we're out of time we're, we've been out of time. We got to go and do something now for everybody else. Everybody's just becoming aware that this has been going on the entire time. So does the holdup come down to, 
the extensive process of, you know, reviewing and replying to those comments? Well, that's the funny part, right? In terms of, you know, people are like, oh, there's a holdup. Well, from the rulemaking perspective, uh, things are moving according to schedule. And if you think about it, if you were to go back from the, you know, look at the whole history of 171 and, and CUI protection in the dib, and you just take the sliver of CMMC's time on the stage, the government has moved incredibly fast, right? I mean, they've been moving at, at light speed for the government. And for them to, you know, I, I wrote this up a while ago, you know, you can also see the number of comments, <laughs> these big comments for all the other rules. This, this rule has 850. Other comments might have like 40. And in that rulemaking process, they took nine months, 12 months, 14 months. Now we got, we got 850 comments and they're saying, yeah, it'll still take us a year, which I mean, you would think it would take them 80 times longer, but, uh, but that's not, that's not what's happening. So it feels slow, but from the government in terms of how they normally operate, things are flying. One sort of snarky way to put it is everybody loves to, I don't, I listen, I don't work for the government. Like I said, I'm just a guy, but everybody loves to like jeer at the government and say, you know, the, the private sector goes fast and they break things. We innovate. Well, that's great until the government does the same thing. And what is getting broken is your ability to work for the government, right? Like everybody wants the government to go fast and break things until your company's getting broken off because they didn't get it right. So I, I always tell people, I'm like, you got to be real careful about telling the government to go faster, go faster, go faster. Because the faster they go, the less precise those answers are going to be. And it won't be until something bad happens that they react and then they write the new regulation. So just be careful what you wish for in terms of them going fast. So uh, tell me a little bit about your company, DefCert. Yeah, so DefCert, uh, we are a small boutique uh, cybersecurity consulting company, and we specialize in working with companies on understanding their DFARS compliance obligations, which typically involves uh, the obligations under NIST 800-171, the standard set of DFARS uh, DOD cybersecurity clauses, and the upcoming cybersecurity uh, maturity certification program slash model. So we, uh, like I said, we're a very small company. It's mostly advisory services. Uh, so effectively we come in in order to try to cut through the haze of what's going on. You know, primarily the main differentiator around what we do from what you might hear in, in the marketplace is everybody says, Hey, uh, you, know, you gotta do a gap assessment. You gotta come in, you gotta check your gaps. You gotta figure out where your gaps are. Uh, that's the wrong approach, right? In in situations where you work with small businesses, which is what we specialize in, uh, the biggest driver of cost and therefore cost savings is not the number of gaps you have. It is the size of the scope that is going to be assessed. So if you aggressively limit the scope of your environment, you will save much more money and your assessment will be much simpler and you will probably have a higher assurance of passing, hopefully, whenever the details come out in the future, if you limit your scope as aggressively as possible. If you walk into a company and you say, let me see your gaps, you're going to find gaps everywhere. Everybody's got gaps. But you might have gaps in parts of the network that don't need to be in scope. So you're going to have a bigger 
capital expenditure. You're going to have longer to remediate. You're going to have more complexity. You're just going to make it, you're just going to snowball this situation out of control. So we approach it from the idea that we got to limit that scope as aggressively as possible first. That's awesome, man. So how can our listeners that, that may be in need of these advisory services get in touch with you? And, um, you know, where can our listeners, you know, follow you on social media as well? Yeah. So, uh, the best part, the best way to get a hold of us is just at devcert.com at our website. It's a very simple website, nothing too flashy or fancy. Uh, you can email us there at info at devcert.com. And the best way to get a hold of me, honestly, on LinkedIn, man, that's, uh, it's the only real social media presence that I have, but that's where you and I met, uh, put out a lot of awesome content over there. We don't, we don't maintain an email list. We don't maintain a paywall. We try to democratize as much of this information as possible. Yeah, man, you're my you're my CMMC expert, man. So anyone listening, hey, hey listen, you got you got to follow Jacob. Hey, listen, I appreciate it, man. I've got my you know I've got my angle on the model that I think helps people understand uh, what's what's going on. Uh, you know, we have our own approach uh, with our clients that we work with. You know, that primarily revolves around reducing scope and integrating existing management systems mm-hmm. uh, to save as much time and money as possible. But uh, when, you know, that it, as, as, uh, as hopefully clear as we've made the, uh, the outline of CMMC in this episode, there are still a lot of issues that you got to think about when you dive into those details. And, and one person doesn't necessarily have um, the answers. A great resource that we could probably link in the show notes, there is a Discord server. Um, where it is a, you know, effectively a hive mind of people across this landscape of compliance that ranges from consultants to uh, people who want to be assessors to small companies to big companies. I mean, it's all comers that have, for some reason or another, needed to interact and understand CMMC and DFARS, uh, basically any type of compliance regulation like that. And uh, they have an awesome happy hour every week where you basically get free consulting. Um, that's the first place I always go when I have a question. Um, so I always hang out over there. But yeah, if you want to get a hold of us, devcert.com, info at devcert.com, or uh, reach out on LinkedIn. I'm always on there. Cool, man. Um, so just wrapping up here, you're out in uh, SoCal, right? Yeah, I'm out in LA. So speaking of happy hours, like what is your go-to spot out there? Yeah, there's some... There's some awesome bars in LA, man. There's some really awesome bars. I'll put it this way. Uh, it depends on what vibe you're looking for. So if you're, if you're looking for, if you're, I, I love cocktails, right? I love classic cocktails. I think it's super, though, the history of the drinks, how they've evolved. I think it's super, super cool. So if you're into classic cocktails and you want the real sort of LA vibe, there's a place called the Varnish in downtown LA. And uh, it's got that sort of speakeasy kind of vibe to it. Uh, it's actually in the back of the restaurant where they invented the French dip sandwich. So it's like a sandwich shop. Really? Yeah, but you go through nice. and it's like this, like, you know, dark wood, low light, really, really awesome bartenders, really, really awesome drinks. What I will say, though, is that sometimes the traffic in L.A. is famous, right? It can be faster to drive down to San Diego to get a drink than it can be to drive up the street to get into downtown. So if you're in LA, look for the varnish. If you're ever in San Diego, you got to find a place called polite provisions. And it's like sort of the exact opposite. It's very open, very airy, but their drinks are really, really good. Equally as good 
really great bartenders if you're into craft cocktails. Nice. Nice. Now, what if you're down in like, you know, Santa Monica, Venice, and you want to hit it like a nice beach bar? Man? All right. Well, if you're over there, what I'd say is if you want the best bar in town, uh, hit me up because my home bar, I'm going to, I'm going to just go ahead and say my home bar is definitely, I should probably come up with a good name for it. Now that I think about it, it's an unnamed, <laughs> unnamed bar at this point. Uh, listen, we all, we've all uh, expanded our, our, our home hobbies, I think during coronavirus, but, uh, you know, LA is really cool, man, because the, the craft cocktail scene is so big that, uh, they have, you know, meetups, like the bar, the really amazing bars that are out here. Sometimes they'll do classes. I mean, all of the, uh, places where they get their super great ingredients and even their specialized ice, Hmm. uh, you have access to because you live down the street from those places. So it's, it's easy to kind of, uh, play along. Yeah. hundred percent. So, um, yeah, I just heard last call here at barcode. You got time for one more? Yeah, definitely. If you decided to open up a cybersecurity theme bar, what would the name be? And what would your signature drink be called? Oh man. All right. Well, first things first. Uh, if, if I'm open, usually when I'm going to the bar, it's because of cybersecurity and I don't want to deal with it anymore. Right. I think most of the, uh, most of the folks understood, most of the folks who are hanging out at the bar who work in the security industry are there because of working in the security industry. (laughs) So I don't know if theming it is gonna, is gonna be my speed. Uh, but yeah, so if I was going to name it something, right, it would have to be, well, maybe we'll go off that. Maybe the home bar expands one day, right? Maybe we'll call the bar, uh, the final rule, right? So we'll call it the final rule. Okay. What the signature drink would be. Let's see. No comment. No, <laughs> that's pretty good, man. No comment is pretty good. It would have to, it's gotta be some sort of a play on some, obs- some obscure rulemaking process. Right. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll have to think about that. I'll, th- I'll think about that. It'd be interesting if people, people, uh, you know, give feedback on the show, what they think the, the drink would be. But uh, yeah, I think the final the final rule would definitely be the definitely be the bar for sure, man. Well, Jacob, man, thank you for coming on and, and sharing this knowledge with us. Go down the street, enjoy yourself a drink. I'm going to do the same here. All right, buddy. Yeah, anytime, man. I'm really happy to be here. This is great. All right, man. Take care. Later. Barco patrons. If you like this episode and would like to support the podcast, rate us on Apple Podcasts and visit our Patreon site, patreon.com slash barcode podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, check out the barcodepodcast.com slash sponsor. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.